0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. In First Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing... But to us who are being saved it is the power of God For it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Oh, great God, you're the one who is the almighty creator, who has created everything that we see and know and experience. The world and everything in it and everything beyond it, place the stars in the heavens Carved out the oceans and made the mountains and the seas. You breathe life into us. And you sustain us and everything around us each and every day. And we come this morning in awe and in reverence of you. You are a great and a mighty God, an awesome God, beyond our human comprehension. And we've gathered today as your people and we've gathered in your presence And we're very well aware of who we are. We've come here today as people who are far from perfect. We're people who in many ways get things wrong. We fail, we fall, we sin. We're mindful of our own sin this morning and we come before you confessing that even in these moments of prayer. Believing your promise that you're faithful and you're just. That on the account of Christ you will forgive us for everything we've done. Wipe the slate clean and give us a fresh start. Lord, we also are not confused about who we are in light of the world around us. We, uh, like the ones to whom Paul wrote in Corinth, are not uh, in the world's standards the noble. We are not the popular. We're not those who are considered wise. We're not of the upper crust of our society. In fact, many in the world around us would look upon us as foolish would view what we're doing and gathered to do this morning as as backwards. But Lord, we know the truth. There's a wisdom that flows from you that's not like the so-called wisdom of the world. There's a strength and a beauty that comes from knowing you that the world doesn't know. There's a peace that passes all understanding that comes through personal relationship with you through your son. That the world can't comprehend. And so we've come in light of that today. We've not gathered before you because of our great righteousness. Because we are not righteous. We have not come before you today because of our great wisdom. We are in many ways unwise. We've come before you today on account of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, your Son. And we have no great wisdom even to speak today. We have no great intellectual thought to consider. We have one great message, and that's Your Son, Jesus, buried, crucified, and raised on our behalf. A truth, a gospel that's good news that much of the world stumbles over, but we, we've come because we've understood and we've seen and You've revealed it to our eyes. And we've been drawn to You through Him. And so we come with thankful hearts. We come with thankful hearts because You've revealed Yourself to us, because You've given Your Son for us. and Because each and every moment of every day, You care for every one of our needs. We are eternally grateful this morning to You, O God. And we are eternally grateful to You, O Christ, for standing in our stead, for dying on the cross, for being raised for our new life. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower the praise of your people in this place this morning. That you would be for us a teacher. As your word is proclaimed in just a few moments, that you would open our hearts to understand and to receive your truth. And not just as an intellectual exercise, but as an experiential exercise. That your word would would plant itself deep in us and grow and bear fruit. You would challenge us this morning that you would... Expose areas of our life that need attention. That you would build us up in our faith. And that you would draw us close to yourself. We give thanks for our pastor this morning who has prepared to lead us, to teach us your word. Empower him as he preaches this morning. Give us attentive hearts, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. amen.
1: Turn your Bibles, please, to John chapter 13, page 1,478 in my Bible, if you've got one like mine. Pure, humble love. Before I get started, I will um, mention that um, I was pretty much chastised and ridiculed and made fun of. Because of the silent H on humble, I guess I'll try to say humble um, all week long. I was ridiculed for that. But to my honor, I did not retaliate. I want to apologize for my age or the fact that I grew up in Charleston. You can say it either way. Um, I I started to say pardon because the French pronunciation of pardon should give you a little clue why the H is silent in some of our English words. Okay, that being said, we need one nursery worker, please. One approved nursery worker, if you can help us out. Must be Bedlam back there. I see people with their hair... Fulling on their hair? No, I don't. (coughs) We need an humble worker. Thank you, Dolores. (coughs) Last week, we had an introduction on the upper room discourse. (coughs) Some people call it the uh, farewell discourse. I took a class. In the mid-80s, called the Upper Room Experience. I've heard that term before uh, lately, too. And uh, we saw clearly a brief review of how John is divided into two parts. There's a prologue there in chapter 1, and then at the end, when Jesus is restoring Peter, there's an epilogue, and then... In between, they like it's like two volumes. There's the Book of Signs, book, uh, chapters one through twelve, and then uh, the second half are uh, chapters thirteen through uh, twenty-one. The Book of Signs shows us those seven signs, plus many, many other things that Jesus um, permitted to. Uh, take place and, and commanded. And, and those things that he said in those first 12 chapters, that's why we call it the book of signs, because John uh, specifically took 12, seven signs that Jesus had performed um, to reveal to people who he was and is. And at the end of chapter 12, verse 37, we read, though, he had done so many signs before them they still did not believe him. And so all those people, the mass of, um, of of Israel, did not respond to the miraculous ministry of Jesus. The revelation that he gave them was complete. And yet we see there at the end of 12, they still did not believe him. So, certainly some responded to the grace of God. But for the most part, uh, the Jewish nation rejected the truth. And then the second part of John we call the Book of Passion, um, or some people do. And that hides really the glory of Jesus from everybody else except from his disciples in this farewell discourse. And so the first 12 chapters, we've got the public ministry of Jesus to the nation of Israel. And the second half of the book, we've got his private ministry to his disciples, and he's preparing them, and he's preparing you, and he's preparing me for living the Christian life and for doing ministry until he returns. They, those disciples, needed preparation for the future. And this is wonderful preparation. It's not surprising that John would spend five chapters on this one evening uh, with his disciples. And, and even beyond what John wrote, there's so much more in the Synoptic Gospels as well. So it was an amazing, amazing time. And John, as we saw, John's intention is not to repeat what Matthew, Mark, and Luke said. Uh, apparently his intention was to supplement those Gospels, not duplicate what they said. And so... In, Verse one: We read now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them uh, to the end. We didn't went into a lot of detail about this verse uh, last week, but I just want to, to to say a few things since this is really the introduction to this discourse, and we are continuing the beginning of this discourse. Um, today, as we did last week, and we saw that the overview theme of it all is, is love in this beginning section. And yet that theme of love shows itself throughout the entire uh, uh, discourse, but specifically in this passage. What does, that, what, what does that love look like? And we'll see that more clearly today in more detail than we did last week extremely important uh, introduction as we look at these upcoming chapters. You remember I said this is the last legitimate Passover. Um, <clears throat> this is the transition from the last legitimate Passover to that next night when the perfect Lamb of God would give His life for the world, would be slain, would be sacrificed. And the establishment of the Lord's Supper takes place this night. Passover is no longer necessary after April 7th in the year 30. And there are three things we see here that drive Jesus to wash his disciples' feet. And that's the main point we have in this this passage. Three things that drive him to demonstrate royal Service, royal ministry to his disciples. He knew first, you see, that his hour had come. He was to die. His time was short. Whatever he hoped to teach these disciples, in some cases, whatever he might be thinking, whatever he hoped to teach these knuckleheads, they hadn't learned it up to now. Uh, time was short. Uh, in fact, there's no more time. He's got to do it quickly. We've talked for weeks about it not being his hour, but now his hour had come. Uh, second thing of these three in this verse, we see he loved his own, his followers on earth to those whom God had given him. We'll look at that in just a minute. And then we, saw, we see in verse um, 2, he knows who the enemy is during supper when the devil had already put him in the heart of Judas Iscariot. He, he knows who the enemy is. Let me make that point about love before we go any further, which I made last week. That occurrence of love is, is uh, significant uh, in this passage. first 12 chapters, we, just, we see it a few times. Uh, the prominent words in the first 12 chapters are life and light. But in this upper room discourse, we see it many, many times. Let me share that chart again. You see life in chapters 1 through 12 50 times. In 13 through 17, you see it six times. You see light 32 times in the first 12 chapters. In 13 through 17, you don't see that word at all. In love, it's just the opposite. With love, you see 12 times in the first 12 chapters, one per chapter. In 13 through 17, you see the word love 34 times. So clearly the theme of the farewell discourse is love, true, pure love. Love born out of true, perfect humility. It's appropriate John would emphasize this theme, not because they're just all lovey-dovey brothers in Christ. No, that's not why he presents this theme There's a reason he presents this theme, or at least a reason why it's emphasized so much here. In Luke 22, on that same night, Luke says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So they're not just buddies sitting at the table getting ready to have a meal together. They're fighting and fussing and arguing with each other. And so Jesus sees this as a great occasion to do what he does, to perform what he does. Even at the end, they still didn't get it. Even at the end, 24 hours before Jesus is hanging on the cross, They're most concerned about their own honor and their own dignity, their own place in the world. And Jesus loved his own who were in the world. And you might ask, doesn't Jesus love everybody? What's it mean Jesus loved? Why his own? Well, his own ultimately includes... All those, both in heaven and earth, who are followers of the Lord Jesus. He loves them all. Those who remained here, that's what John is talking about. He loved, having loved his own who were in the world, those who remained here were the ones that he was going to set an example on that particular day for them. And there is a sense that Jesus loves everybody. But who are Christ's own? I didn't put these verses on uh, the screen because I wasn't going to share them with you, but I changed my mind. Who were his own? In, in the Gospel of John, we've seen, um, we've, we, he's described who these people are uh, a number of times already. They were those who'd been given to him by the Father. In John 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 44 of John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Who are his own? It's those for whom Christ was about to die. Chapter 10, verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who are the sheep? The ones he lays down his life for. Verse 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Those are the people we see in... Uh, Chapter 1, verse 13, "...who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God." Born of God and given to the Son. They are those for whom Christ gives eternal life. Those who will never perish. Those who could never be plucked out of the Father's hand. Chapter 10, 28 and 29, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me as greater than it all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Those are His own. He's described over and over and over in this book already. And what's the world the world's the human race out of which God has called His own and loves them to the end. He loved them to the end. The more I read that this week and I've been studying this passage for several weeks, well, for all my life, which is a real long time. But as I read that this week, a part of it sounds a bit sarcastic. John is thinking that despite of all the silliness that's going on, they're arguing each other. Now, John's right. He's a part of all that silliness and that argument, and that complaining. He's writing this 60 years after the fact. OK, so now he's looking back. And, and, and he's thinking, you know, that despite all of this. Jesus still hung on with those guys, so he loved them to the end. Certainly there was more to it than that. We spoke about that last week. To the end, to the end of Jesus' earthly life. It's a love that will never end, we're told over and over in scripture. And it's a love that reaches to the utmost for us. It reaches to the fullest extent this love does. It's the ultimate extent of His love. He loves His own to the extent that He will be made sin for them and He will die on a cruel cross as their suffering substitute. So Christ dies for His own. He loves His own in the world to the end. And it's, it, it, it's true in a sense that He loves everyone in the world. The Father has a benevolent attitude toward everyone that He has created. It can be said that He loves the world for God so loves the world. He has provided for the world in remarkable ways. But for some in the world, that love will end. And they will spend an eternity in hell. But then there is a redeeming love That will never, never end for others. That's the love that he's referring to here. Agape love. God's redeeming love. That's the kind of love that he has for his own. That's the kind of love that he has for all believers. Infinite love from an infinite God. James Boyce puts it great, much more succinctly than me. God does some things for all men, but God does everything for some men. God does some things for all men, but God does everything for some men. That's His own. And for, for those of us who receive that redemptive love, we sang this in just a couple of weeks. Weeks ago, for those of us who've received that redemptive love, we can sing love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my... What? All. Oh. Don Carson says, "...the object of the love of God in Christ in these chapters is therefore not the lost world, but the newly forming people of God." The disciples of the Messiah, the nascent church, nascent meaning embryonic just from the very beginning. The community of the elect. Jesus had loved his own all along. He now showed them the full extent of his love. And so we see in this opening introduction, the fact that Jesus shows us his perfect love for his own in the cross is just a few hours away. And he shows what that means in the selfless act of love, the foot washing that we'll look at. And that foot washing looks directly to the cross of Jesus Christ. A couple of chapters later, he reminds us greater love is no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. That's the setting we find ourselves here. The beginning of the. The upper room discourse. In verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We'll look that Jesus begins to wash the disciples' feet. Next, we'll look at how he's challenged by Peter. And then we'll look at how he applies this lesson for us all. First, Jesus begins to wash their feet. Having put it into the heart of Judas. The the, the word means literally cast it into the heart of Judas. And you might might think that, okay, Jesus knows. He's known all along what Satan was going to do in Judas' heart. So... Why didn't he just stand up there and defeat Satan right there at the moment and it all be done with? But that's not part of God's plan. I mean, listen, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Apparently, John wanted us to know Jesus had the power to defeat Satan right there on the spot and chose not to because there was another plan. cast it into his heart. That's the evidence of Judas not having faith. What does that conjure up for you in Ephesians 6, verse 16? In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Clearly, Judas had no shield of faith Satan was able to throw the dart, pierce his heart with all kinds of evil. I don't know how Satan was able to persuade Judas' mind, tempt him to betray the Lord Jesus. But we do know that it was by means of his sin of greed. It's an important lesson for all of us. Satan could tempt no one unless there is some inclination in their mind, uh, unless there is some natural or depraved propensity towards some sort of sin that Satan could make use of. And he presents attractive things that are appealing to us based on our weaknesses. Don't forget that. What was Judas' weakness? The love of money. What's yours? What's your weakness? That's what Satan will target. He'll present appealing things to you. Attractive things that appeal to your weaknesses. Because you have a propensity to succumb to those things. And you will. when you're not walking, when you're Christ, when you're not in the Word, when you're not on your knees. For Judas, it was the love of money. It was necessary to present him with the the possibility of obtaining some money. Found him ready for the crime. We'll talk more about Judas later in the chapter. Let me remind you that It seems sort of out of place in verse 2. Like he just sticks verse 2 there for no particular reason. But it's a good reminder to us that Jesus washed his feet too. Also remember, in so many words, Judas was a church member. Judas was a leader. No offense Robert, Judas was the church treasurer. Active. And John, like I said, is writing this far in the future, 60 years, and so he's he's looking back and telling us this, but at the time nobody suspected Judas whatsoever, not until the end of this evening. Is Judas, do they know what his purposes are? He looked like a committed believer, just like the rest of all the other disciples. Good, clean church member. But his was a false profession. And we must be on our guard. We must be on our guard lest we think we do all the right things and say all the right things and serve in all the right ways in order that we might gain some sort of favor from God and be saved. Satan sowed seed in Judas' heart. It's a great time of year to talk about sowing evil seed. How many of you have cut all those weeds that have grown up in your yard? The last couple of weeks, he's sowing seed in our hearts. Stephen, Frank, and I—you know those guys that know about yards—they tell me you got to put that pre-emergent down, and you got to kill that thing before it comes up. And that's so true in your life. The disciples didn't volunteer for this job of foot washing. And that's understandable. It's a job they never ever considered doing under normal circumstances. But the shock that Jesus is doing it, it's not just quite possibly they were ashamed that he got up to do it, that they didn't step up to the job they didn't lower themselves in the same way. Here, Jesus just reverses normal roles. Don Carson says that. He reverses normal roles. His act of humility is as unnecessary as it is stunning and is simultaneously a display of love a symbol of saving, cleansing, and a model of Christian conduct. And he begins to wash their feet, demonstrating what he said on that same night, which I just read for you, Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. I am among you as the one who serves. The King of kings and Lord of lords, God of very God, laid his clothing aside and began to wash the, the feet of these men, the dirty feet of these men. The master became the slave. The Lord took on the ministry of humiliation. The highest came to the place of the lowest. The sovereign became the subject, submitted himself. Charles Simeon said, what a beautiful illustration does it give us of his incarnation Behold Him, laying aside His robes of majesty and clothing Himself in our flesh and coming not to be ministered unto, but to minister to our guilty race. This passage is, as you see there and that quote, this passage is frequently compared to that passage in Philippians 2, verse 5 and following. Now we see Jesus, Jesus in the foot washing physically illustrates what? Paul describes theologically and Christologically. Before we compare that, let's look at Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only at his own interest, but also to the interests of others, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see in the foot washing at first what Jesus rose from supper. This had already been done in a far greater way when he rose from his throne of glory coming into this world in the incarnation, as Simeon said. Second, he laid aside his garments. It says that when he came into the world, he laid aside his glory, set aside his glory, which was his so that he could appear as a true man. You know, if he hadn't come in human form, there would only be one other way he could come to this earth. God is spirit, and we would all and man can't look on God. Unless he wants to die, and so he had to come in human form. laid aside his glory came in human form. Next, he took a towel and tied it to himself, the garb of a servant, took a roll of a servant. Paul says he took that upon himself, poured, it out, and then finally he poured water into a basin began to wash the disciples' feet just a few short hours before he pours out his blood on that cross, washing away human sin by the atonement. To see the end of this parable that we're looking at today. Then you skip to verse 12. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what have I have done to you? He returned to his place. Even the same Christ returns, highly exalted. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, heaven and on earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews 1, verse 3, that verse ends with, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. F.B. Meyer paraphrases all of this. He said, He rose from the throne, laid aside his garments of light, took up the poor towel of humanity and wrapped it about his glorious person poured out his own blood into the basin of the cross and set himself to wash away the foul stains of human depravity and guilt. Secondly, we see how he's challenged by Peter. Verse 6, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? There's a little bit of shock here. That's the surprise. You're going to wash my feet? And Jesus answers him, What I'm doing... You do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said, You shall never wash my feet. And that's emphatic. You shall never, ever, not in a million years will you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, just on the surface, that seems rather harsh. If I don't wash the dirt off your feet, I'm going to have nothing to do with you. So it must mean something else, right? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So in two verses, we go from, you'll never wash my feet to give me a bath. Way to go, Peter. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But it's completely clean. You're clean. But not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said not all of you are clean. And so there's this realization of what's happening here. You're going to wash my feet? It seems Peter might be first in line here too. Jesus turns to him to wash first. They're laying. It's a low... uh, It's a low table, and they're on a couch or, or a cushion, and their feet are to the back, and they're laying, I guess, on their left elbow, so they can read with their right hand, unless their left hand, okay, um, and, and, so, and their feet are toward the back, and so Jesus is, is going around the table washing their feet. And what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And as we go further, and especially in Acts, we see how things happen, and their eyes open, and they see, yeah, he told us this would happen. It's glorious. It's a wonderful thing. And Jesus answered him. What he's saying, Peter, if you're not willing for me to wash your feet, You certainly would not accept my blood being poured out for you and washed you clean. Peter always seems to miss the point, doesn't he? Well, it's late. You must have prayed long. (laughs) Peter walks on the water. He begins to sink. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ and Then he rebukes Jesus, and after this event, he goes, "I'll lay down my life for you." And then he denies Jesus not long after that. And here he does this about face, and you never, never wash me at all, giving me a bath. The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. I focused on that some this week too. Would it be wonderful for Jesus before the resu- before His death and resurrection to stand face to face with you and say, "You're saved." <laughs> That's what He's telling Peter. You are saved. Now, I know we have the blessed assurance of salvation and. And and, and and all those things. But there's just something about Jesus telling you in a way that you can hear, you are saved. And that's what he's telling Peter. It's very evident here that Jesus is talking not about physical dirt, that he's been cleansed. What about sin and the need to be cleansed from that sin? He's explaining to Peter. He's not explaining this to Judas, that he's a justified person and needs only cleaning from the contaminating effects of this world that he lives in today. Not, he doesn't need pardon from the penalty of sin. He needs cleansing from the contaminating effects of the world today. The parallel is that when travelers of that particular time came to a friend's house for a visit, his feet would need to be washed. Not his whole body, especially at Passover. That was a part of the Passover process that you bathed before the Passover dinner. In a similar way, those who belong to Christ are completely justified children of God, but they do need that constant cleansing from the repeated defilement of sin in this world where we walk in order to have fellowship with God, in order that our fellowship with the Son might not be broken. You may be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, but you live and you walk in this world and this world is full of sin. walking in this world, you get dirtied, so to speak, by the sin of this world. And Jesus is telling Peter, you don't need to be born again and again and again and again and again. To be born again once is enough. You have that assurance. But even as regenerated people, even as saved people, we still come to him for cleansing because this world we're sinners. You can't lose your salvation. He loved his own to the end. He's already told us that. He perseveres. In the, in the doctrines of grace I, I, don't, I don't use the term perseverance of the saints. I like perseverance of Christ. He's the one that sticks with us and perseveres with us. Peter, the amount of washing is not equal to the blessing. It's not the physical washing that is important. Christ continues on with his spiritual meaning. He who is bathed, who is justified by my blood, has no need for complete washing except for that daily sanctification, that daily setting apart, that, that daily spiritual cleansing in their lives. That's what the foot washing represents. And what Peter is doing at this moment, Peter is protesting against divine sovereign grace. Before a person can become a part of Christ, there's a critical prerequisite. An absolute essential for, before someone can become a part of Christ. That person must be washed and cleansed thoroughly. Paul tells us what that washing and cleansing is in Titus 3. So if we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving and kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. What? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? The cleansing that Christ provides is a once-for-all act. Even people who have been cleansed by Christ, atoning work, will need to have their sins washed away. Will need to have their sins forgiven. Will need daily mercy in their lives. Those mercies are new every day. And we need that. Meyer puts it much more succinctly than I do. Bathed once at Calvary, cleansed daily in our walk with Christ. But not every one of you. But not every one of you, he says to Peter. Washing and cleansing is not automatic. It doesn't come by association. It's clearly seen in Judas. Judas been with Jesus, working side by side with Jesus, day in and day out with Jesus. He's a professed follower and servant of the Lord Jesus. Yet never receive what Paul just talked about, the washing of regeneration. And John has this little parenthesis in verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said not all are clean. And then lastly, we see Jesus applies the lesson, verse 12. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and returned, his, resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He finished washing their feet. He asked them the question, do you realize what I've done for you? And then he gives them this simple command. Jonathan Edwards said, try to take in these words, they should follow his example. Because he's their Lord and Master. Christ, as he is a divine person, is the Lord of heaven and earth, and so one of infinite dignity, to, one our, to whom our supreme respect is due. And on that account, he is infinite, infinitely worthy that we should regard not only his precepts, but example. The infinite honorableness of his person recommends his virtues, and a conformity to them. As our greatest dignity and honor. Our greatest dignity and honor. Conforming to what Christ has showed us. He's our shepherd. And the sheep follow the shepherd. He's the captain of our salvation. Soldiers follow their captain and their leader. He's our head. He's our authority. He's our ruler. And I don't believe he's just saying... Lower yourself so much that you're willing to serve here on earth and wash feet and do whatever's necessary without any credit. But our willingness must reach all the way to death. You get that? Now, fortunately, that won't be required, hopefully, of any of us to die for his friend, to die for someone Maybe some of us will be, that will be required of us to die for someone else. But he's asking that in the heart of all of us: Will you die? When he says, "Do as I have done," he's not talking about just that little humble service of kneeling down and washing some dirt off somebody's grubby feet. No, that's a great example. On that same night, in chapter 15, we read, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And John tells us in 1 John three sixteen, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I read of a journalist who was in World War II was in an army hospital and he was watching a nurse do that horrible work that she was having to do in that army hospital and on the battlefield. And he said, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. She turned around and looked at him and said, I wouldn't either. Sacrificial giving of self-servanthood that he's talking about. It's service that is willing to die for another. It's service that we get nothing out of. In fact, those of you who care for people with dementia or Alzheimer's patients. JP, you understand this. Boyd, you understand this. Many of you understand this already. We might not even get the satisfaction That we have served because it might not be received in a positive light. And since pride was the source of human sin, remember Adam and Eve? Humility is the only antidote. I love that old line you've heard me say before. I was given a medal for my humility, but they took it away when I wore it. In Screwtape Letter Number 14, Screwtape says to Wormwood, I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn attention to the fact? And those of you that are elders need to especially hear this, but it's for, it applies to all of us. One of the ways that human pride shows itself in society, especially a society like ours, is when it refuses to take the lowest role. I said those of you who are elders. I I should have said those of us who are elders. But now that Jesus, their Lord and teacher, has washed the disciples' feet, an unthinkable act. There is every reason why we should do that to one another. Not as a new sacrament or a new ordinance. That's silliness to me. There's no conceivable reason for refusing to serve at the lowest level. Jesus says, I have set you an example. I'm the pattern of washing feet and in dying for my own. There's no greater display to followers of Christ's display of humility. Not here this night washing feet, but the next night dying on the cross. We can talk about it. Don Carson said, Christian zeal... Divorced from transparent humility sounds hollow, even pathetic. We can talk about it all day long. You can talk the Bible and you can quote your scripture. And, and, and I can stand up here and preach about humility and preach about service and preaching about love and the lowliness. But if we don't do it, it's pathetic. And then, just briefly, I'm sorry, we've gone over time. There's an added piece here which I could preach a whole other sermon on. I'm not. And it's just verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you have another translation, it might translate that in more American English terms. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them really what it means. Another added benefit that we tend to skip over, and I'm going to skip over today, but are you depressed? Are you sad? Are you lonely? Are you directionless in your life? Jesus says that the key to overcoming those things are to do what He has instructed us to do. To get on your knees and wash feet and even be willing to die for a brother and sister in need. That's the key to happiness. You don't have to buy the book, the self-help book at Barnes & Noble. You don't need several chapters to describe to you how to be happy. It's all there in one sentence. That's how you overcome your depression. That's how you overcome your sadness. That's how you overcome your loneliness. Charles Simeon said, To those who delight in every office of love, we say, Happy are ye. It's the most unquestionable truth. That the more lowly we are in our own eyes, the higher we are in God's. And the more we delight in doing good to others, the more richly will the blessing of God rest upon ourselves. And that's the Word of God. You think about that. Let's pray. In a moment, we're going to sing a hymn. Am I a soldier of the cross? don't know if you're familiar with it or not. It's a good question to ask ourselves at a time like this. If you have questions.